0: Welcome to this episode of To Differ Is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, with Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jurevich, the Diocese Rabbi in Residence and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community located in Raleigh. I'm Summerly Walter, the producer for this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. This episode is part two of our four part Lenten series. And today we discuss a familiar concept for anyone who engages in the liturgical season of Lent, repentance. Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam both understand repentance not as a requirement to relive shameful moments for the sake of being punished, but instead as a means of returning to right relationships with God and with each other through asking for and receiving forgiveness and taking steps to right the wrongs we have committed. Two examples from the early chapters of Genesis— Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, provide a starting point for thinking about what it means to break the bonds of a relationship and how asking for forgiveness might change the paradigm. Like all episodes of To Differ Is Divine, this episode includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition, or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Repairing Relationships, part two of the four-part Lenten series of To Differ as Divine from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina.
1: We spoke last time about understandings of sacrifice or offering as we are in the Lenten season. And other elements of the season include a call to repentance and confession. And perhaps one of the first things we might want to talk about is rather chicken and eggy. Does confession come before repentance? Where's the point of recognition of having done wrong? And so on. So I will give a brief overview, and we can come back in more detail after, of some of the aspects of repentance and its related topics of confession in Jewish tradition, and then hand off to Bishop Sim, who will talk about these topics within the context of the Episcopal Church. I'm embarrassed to say, and I know there's now even a term, TIL, today I learned. I was this many days old and I learned something new, and it's often something rather obvious, but It was only perhaps 10 or 15 years ago that I learned how deeply embedded virtual repentance practices are within my own tradition. It's not that I didn't understand that we were called to recognize when we had transgressed against others. And I had a sense of the desire that there be peace in the household for Shabbat that we we'll not go into the Sabbath with grievances and aggravations that we try to find reconciliation within the home before entering Shabbat time. I was aware that the month of Elul, the month before the high holy days of Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, that whole month was given over to a an accounting of one's soul, as it were, looking to see where you had been during the year. But up until that point, perhaps 15, maybe 20 years ago, I had not learned that there were daily practices in addition to the Shabbat practice, or that there was a monthly practice called Yom Kippur Katan, a small Yom Kippur, that's tied to the new moon, the moment of that darkness of the moon before it transitions into a new month. That little bit of learning illuminated for me something that does merit a today I learned sort of hashtag, because in a Sabbath hymn that virtually every Shabbat eve I sing, it talks about the Sabbath time being a kind of a culmination of the intent of creation, a return. Well, the Hebrew word for repentance is teshuvah, which means return that we cycle through in our lives processes of creation exploration growth error discovery repentance recommitment and so on over and over and over again and now i understood that this worked as a kind of a an almost tidal pull because it works every day first of all there is a lovely prayer that one may offer before going to sleep that I may have mentioned in an earlier session, where it offers forgiveness to people who may have offended us during that day and offers our own teshuva, our own return our repentance for having done anything that might have offended somebody else and plants a sense of an action directive, as Reb Zalman liked to say, to make sure that that person is aware that you recognized your transgression and that you are repentant the next time the opportunity arises. Secondly, there's the Shabbat time, where we are enjoined to find a way to bring peace into our homes. Then there's Yom Kippur Katan on a monthly basis. And there's even a lovely liturgy that's meant to be recited with a sort of spiritual buddy, somebody you make an agreement with to meet together on the eve of the new moon to talk about areas in terms of your own spiritual refinement, your own behavioral refinement over the past month, where you might be having problems. So you could say, when I get home every day, I'm so tired after work, I'm really snappish with the kids, and I'm trying so hard not to do that. And your friend can encourage you and acknowledge that that's an understandable thing to worry about, and it's understandable to feel like you just want to be left alone a bit when you come home, and you can talk about strategies around that. Anything that has to do with your behavior with other people can be brought into the conversation about, how am I to live? And in what way can my recognition of having missed a mark lead me to behave better in the coming month? So you have daily, weekly, monthly. Then you have an entire month, the month of Elul, for doing this wholesale examination of what's been going on for the previous year. And then you have this opportunity during the days of awe to experience the sense of renewal out of having confessed and repented and recommitted yourself to do even more towards attaining your goals of behavioral and spiritual refinement. There's also a confession, not just at Yom Kippur, there is a deathbed confession. So while there may not be a confessional practice, as in, in some forms of Christianity, of going to a clergy for absolution of sin, there is a sense that one can offer, again, offerings we bring to God, can offer up one's understanding of places where Our humanity bumped into the hard places in reality, and we didn't quite live up to everything we aspired to in our life, and we're not going to go into the next world at odds with God over those things we might need to confess. There is a great deal around repentance and confession within the tradition, and I look forward to seeing where we'll go with that.
2: I want to start with a turn of phrase that you used to describe our relationship, which was a devotional friendship. I'm drawn to that because I deeply believe that that is one of the expressions that God is inviting each of us into in our relationship with the Holy One. And that may sound presumptuous, right? For those of us that are human, that God should stoop to desire a friendship with us but I believe that that is actually very much at the heart of the movement of the holy in terms of inviting us into relationship and the deep desire for companionship, for company. I love the image from the Genesis story, which I probably have referenced in our conversations, of God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And when that ritual is interrupted by their disobedience, their partaking of the forbidden fruit, they're eating of the apple, and God shows up for their ritual walk, and he can't find them, and they're hiding. And he asks, why were you hiding? And they say, well, we're naked. The Holy One's response is, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I asked you not to? And of course, we know the answer to that. But in some sense, that action, which many have described in different traditions as the first sin, if not the original sin, which has a whole other set of constructs and baggage attached to it, but the first sin was really an interruption in a devotional friendship. And the invitation to repentance and confession is to return to the friendship. And I think that it's a compelling way of speaking about the invitation of the Lenten season or the seasons that you described in your tradition that invite us to reflect, return, repent, confess, not necessarily in that order. And I, I appreciate your reminding us that they don't always follow a pattern or an order, but all of them seem to be a part of the process. And the invitation to repent and turn, and return, is something that is captured in our Episcopal tradition in an an offering that was brought forward not too long ago by our presiding bishop in something called the Way of Love, which was a contemporary interpretation of spiritual practices that actually help us to attend to this lifelong journey of discipleship and of deepening that connection and relationship with the Holy One that we seek and who seeks us. Two of the practices are turn, which is deeply connected, as you shared, Rabbi Raquel, with the invitation to repentance, and learn, which is the corollary and is so much at the heart of what we often are taught and have taught our children. This was certainly a mantra in my relationship with my two daughters that mistakes are really an invitation to learn. And what we learn from our mistakes is what brings value to those mistakes. And the journey in Lent is at least in part an invitation to acknowledge our mistakes, to acknowledge where we've missed the mark, where we've fallen short, and as we learn to turn, to turn based on what we've learned back to that relationship, back to that devotional friendship, and to discover in that process what it means to be reshaped and reformed by what we learn which i think is really at the heart of most of the relationships in my life that i treasure because there's a level of trust a level of honesty a level of openness that allows for us not to hide from each other but to actually be fully present to each other with all of the behaviors and all of the the warts and all that we would sometimes prefer to keep hidden But instead, the invitation to be a part of a relationship where it's not only allowed that we are imperfect, to go deeper in the relationship, we are required to acknowledge to one another the ways in which we have fallen short. And to me, there is an intimacy and a beauty and an integrity and a depth to that that really is at the heart of what any penitential season or cycle can be about. If we free ourselves from some of the baggage attached to our own shortcomings, and I'll use the word, our sinfulness. Sinfulness seems to be a given, but along with the given, there seems to be an invitation to work through that to a place of deeper connection, and that to me is very much, I think, at the heart of what repentance can be and perhaps should be.
1: It strikes me that there's something particularly apt in you're taking us back into the garden. To think about something before accepting the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, apparently giving our first ancestors a capacity to make distinctions. And perhaps the sinfulness in that is how we use our capacity to make distinctions for the sake of separation and hierarchy and dominance. I'm not not at all sure that there wasn't something deeper, as you suggest, in that rupture of trust, where even within that mythological construct of a first week, and here we have two human beings who've barely been around 24 hours and are now challenged to make ethical decisions. It feels a little bit like a setup. <laughs> We've all seen the bumper sticker, Eve was framed, and that's possible, and the snake gets a bad rap. But it's mythologically very powerful as an indication of a theological question that we do have to confront. What does it mean to be commanded by God? And how do we understand the consequences of disobedience? It's not as though I have any any easy answers for that, but some thoughts. First of all, I want to go back to the sense that ruptured relations with the Holy One are always repairable. So one of my favorite Midrashim is one where Adam comes upon his son, Cain, after Cain has had that very uncomfortable conversation with God about what happened to your brother and has admitted to having murdered Abel. And Adam says, wow, you're, you're here. You're not dead. And Cain says, I told God I was sorry. I didn't realize if I hit him that he could die. I didn't understand that. And I, I feel terrible. So I confessed that I did the I did a bad thing, and God forgave me, because after all, we do have to look at what happens. There's there's some indication that Cain is marked in some way, but he's also the progenitor of civilization, of music and art and uh, dance and architecture and all sorts of wonderful things that we value. So our friend Adam says, "Huh, I could have done that." I mean, it reads in the midrash. It's like that old V8 commercial where. He- <laughs> smacks himself, or Adam smacks himself in the forehead and says, I could have said I was sorry. I could have acknowledged I did the wrong thing. We could still be in the garden. And perhaps that's that's what we're meant to take from this. This notion of returning is realigning. It's an alternative metaphor for our little boat on the stream of divine will. And with our small paddle, we have some options. We can't control the whole thing, but we do have options. And repentance is certainly one of them. I recall we were talking a a while back about, I think it was Psalm 51, and creating me a new heart. And that sense that it is possible for us to be literally remade, to remake ourselves by our efforts at internal refinement, at behavioral change, at accepting, as you said, we're going to make mistakes and we can learn something. And it does strike me over and over again how sad it is when there are interactions that go badly and one or another, and sometimes both of the folks in that interaction, find themselves unable to acknowledge any responsibility and they can't get past it. There's nothing to be done if no one will take responsibility. It's often the case that when you do, the other person will say, well, it's a shared responsibility. Yes, you pushed that big button right in the middle of my, my heart, but I also know that button is there and I didn't need to react that profoundly. It's possible to have those conversations, but only if you're willing to accept that you can transgress and that you can repair, which is one of the great teachings of the Bratislava Rebbe, Reb Nachman of Bratislav, that if you believe you can do damage, then you have to believe that you can repair things. Everything is in tension with everything else, and we live amidst paradox, and you can't claim only one part of a binary as the totality of life because everything is some kind of an admixture. So knowing that relative to the Holy One, we can always turn around and our contrition will be accepted and our repentance will be rewarded with forgiveness just as I have sometimes wondered why some Christians aren't very cheerful. If Jesus died for your sins and your sins have been obliterated by this sacrifice, how about saying thank you and smile a little bit? It is kind of a theology via Monty Python at the end of Life of Brian, but it is a legitimate question. If you have been saved by this, Shouldn't that make you a more cheerful person and less judgmental and punitive, and so on? Anybody who knows me knows I'm capable of being highly judgmental, so I don't get to point too much at that. But the question comes up you know within the the context of, of my own tradition, I often wonder why, since we know that forgiveness is assured, we don't understand the day of atonement as a celebration. Hmm. And one of my favorite Jewish mystical teachers to study, Moses Cordovero, offers some teaching around that, saying that you should be celebrating the evening before Yom Kippur. You should have a a really big feast so that you won't miss any food the next day. You should be ready to celebrate that your forgiveness is assured, that your repentance will be accepted. And perhaps it's that sense that we can always turn to God and have our repentance accepted That can give us strength to turn to one another and ask one another to accept our confession and repentance and recommitment.
2: Which is a perfect opportunity to talk a little bit about one of the ways in the Christian faith that we invite people, especially during the season of Lent, to consider what it means to make a formal confession. And in the Episcopal Church, we call that sacramental rite the rite of reconciliation. And in fact, it is an invitation for us to unburden ourselves. And so you would think that would help us to travel more lightly uh, and maybe a little bit more brightly. And yet there's a heaviness that's often associated with the rite. And that's part of the challenge. It's probably the most underutilized pastoral office in the prayer book. There are some within our tradition that incorporate that on a more consistent basis. But by and large, it is not a particularly popular sacramental rite that is exercised by the average member in our congregations. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that we have a lot of shame that's associated with our shortcomings and with our failures and with the mistakes that we make. And I don't think that shame is actually a part of the divine intention or equation, if you will. My experience, when I am open and able to say to God what it is that I have done, I may have guilt, but shame really is not where the confession leads me. It really does lead me to a place of feeling that I've been heard, that my honesty is appreciated, that there is a way forward, and that the path of owning, as you said a few minutes ago... I could have done that. I could have said, I'm sorry. And the freedom that actually comes from that is quite powerful and quite meaningful and quite, to use the obvious word, quite liberating. It does give us that sense of being, if not made whole, at least set right back on the path that we need to be on, at least for a time, until we stray. And that is, of course, the ongoing rhythm and cycle of the journey we're on. But the gift of those moments where we feel, if not set right, at least recalibrated and attuned, it's quite powerful and quite energizing to have that experience. So you'd think that we would seek it out more often, but we don't. And that is probably one of the challenges as a leader in a faith community, How do we invite people into this opportunity in a way that feels less threatening, more appealing, and where we can talk about the experience in a way that is inviting? I find myself also just recalling the people to whom I have confessed something deep or painful or shameful, and my experience each time, and I've been fortunate, has been that the person on the receiving end of that confession has always made space for me, allowed me to feel what I'm feeling, moved alongside, but not moved into my space, and allowed for the conversation to be a place where I encounter that sense of God's love, God's understanding, and God's forgiveness. So, the invitation to repentance to confession, to turning, is also a gift of being received, of being understood, and of being restored in a relationship. And that is a very powerful gift.
1: There's a great opportunity for creativity in the sense of shaping one's own life in partnership with the Holy One. That is embedded in rituals of acknowledgement of having failed to meet the mark of repentance, confession, commitment to make an effort to not repeat the same mistakes. I think that there's something deeply creative in the way these practices reassure us that if we're just satisfied with how we may have behaved we are capable of change and that there are accessible things in our spiritual toolkit accessible methodologies and practices there's an element in terms of Jewish liturgy where there is a constant tension between what's that's called the keva the structure of ordered prayer and the kavanah the intentionality And the keva is there, the structure is there, because you don't always know when you set yourself to pray if the words are going to come. So if what you need to convey in that moment doesn't arise spontaneously, start with what's on the page and you may find yourself reminded of where you were going. Listening to your observations makes me think of an analogy that hadn't occurred to me previously. There are many places in scripture where God commands Moses to tell the people, If you do this, 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 and this, then all these terrific things will happen. And then if you don't, then these, and the word is curses, these curses will befall you. There's a way of reading that as coercive, as saying, we don't really have free will because God's saying, do what I want. I love you so much, I will send you to hell if you make me unhappy. I mean, there's a problem with that theologically, but there are these passages and one has to consider what they might mean. And one way of looking at them is, as you were suggesting earlier, that there is a dynamic, a real power shift, or even a paradigm shift in understanding within a relationship. If someone is willing to take responsibility and begin a conversation around confession and acknowledgement and repentance and so forth. Similarly, with these passages of blessings and curses, one can look at consequences. If one makes an effort to follow what are very often commandments of community, commandments around the care of one another, commandments around the care of our planet, the care of our community, if you behave in certain ways, the structure of your life will be smoother. You have a keva that will allow you to experience things in as close to an optimal fashion as possible. And if you don't, you're creating unnecessary roadblocks. Hmm. And you're creating occasions of negative consequence that will feel as if you've been cursed because you've made a choice not to follow a path of essentially choosing life as the highest value. I'm very fond of the verse Leviticus 18:5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a person does, they shall live in them. I am the eternal that you actually are enlivened by your adherence to these practices.
2: And that insight from Scripture and through your read of Scripture, that what we are invited to in obedience is not just to do the right thing and not just for our own good, as it often was communicated, at least in my family growing up, but for your deep well-being as a person which is different than for your own good for your own good has something attached to it that feels pejorative for your well-being feels much more like an invitation to become who you are and that is very much i think at the heart of both the rich tradition that each of us share around what is god asking of us and the rich tradition that we also share but it's expressed differently in what happens and what is our recourse when we don't do what we've been asked to do for our well being. You've said several times that there is always the opportunity to return, to make the relationship right. The image that I find so powerful from one of the New Testament parables that Jesus tells only in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the prodigal son is he came at that moment in the story where he was far away and had squandered his inheritance. He came to his senses, which is also interpreted in some translations as he came to himself. But I return to it because the idea of repentance as coming to your senses, and in fact, coming to yourself, Opens a doorway to a whole association with things like not just confession, but penance, which is a part of the rite of reconciliation as not a punishment, but as part of the liberation that God intends for us when we do the work of becoming who we were created to be. And that's a whole different proposition, but it does depend on a level of trust, a level of devotion, mostly ours, but also a recognition that the one at the receiving end of our devotion is one who deeply loves, cares, walks with us, and has our best interests always at heart.
1: I think that the spirit of that is very much expressed in the sense that we get from passages describing the offerings that the Israelites would bring, is that bringing the offering itself was of no consequence if the internal change hadn't occurred, that the offering was somewhat a sign of rebalancing of relationship. It was an outward manifestation of an interior shift in reality. And I think there's been a great deal of movement theologically in recent decades in in many traditions around understandings of divinity as itself a learning and evolving and transforming being. And as I had mentioned earlier, my sense of the monistic nature of reality and my deep affection for Rabbi Green's depiction of us as free-willed extensions of the divine will make me really grateful for teachings within the tradition that remind me that I don't have to aspire to perfection. That's not a particularly Jewish value. There's a lovely teaching that I tend to remind myself and when I was a pulpit rabbi in my community every high holidays that says that where a repentant person stands, somebody who has really done the work around their transgressions, the fully righteous don't merit to stand. That if you're perfect, there's so much you haven't learned and you don't have a higher status than the person who's struggled. And so I'm grateful for the opportunities or routine rituals of rebalancing and repair that make it possible for us to understand ourselves as part of a larger creation that is tending towards ever more fullness.
2: I think that brings us to the threshold of our next topic, which will be forgiveness as we continue our journey with you through Lent. We look forward to that conversation.
0: Join us in two weeks for part three of our Lenten series, in which Bishop Sam and Rabbi Raquel will explore the concept of forgiveness.